Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to do in this audio, John chapter 9, verses 22 through 41. The audio picks up right in the middle of the story of Jesus healing a man born blind in Jerusalem in the last half year of his ministry. I had to stop in the last audio because I didn't have enough time to cover the whole subject, so it was sort of an artificial place where I stopped right in the middle. So let me give you some review of what happened in the previous 21 verses of the chapter. Jesus is passing by somewhere in Jerusalem. His disciples ask him who sinned, this man or his parents. And Jesus then debunks the Pharisees' idea that the man had to have some kind of sin. He says, no, it's just so that I can do a miracle and show the glory of God. He does the miracle, and he, you recall he ask, he puts spit and mud together, mixes it together, puts it on his eyes, and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. When he's healed, the Pharisees don't like it. They said, who did this? And they didn't really believe Jesus did it until they went and interviewed the man's parents. And, okay, now they believe when the, man, when the parents convinced him, yep, that's our son. He was born blind, but they still weren't finished. The parents, because they come back, and, and we'll see in just a minute, they come back and start interviewing the blind, the formerly blind man again. And the parents, they cop out. They don't want to get thrown out of the synagogue, and so they, they do that. And then there was division among the Pharisees. They say, how could a sinner do such signs? Because healing a blind man born blind from birth is an incredible messianic type of miracle. And so they were all in an uproar, in a tizzy, full of consternation. And so we, the parents right here in verse 21 said, we don't know how he sees. We don't know. We don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. They threw off the investigation. Said, go ask my son. He's of age. He's old enough to testify. And now we'll start in verse 22. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Messiah, confessed Jesus as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why the parents said, he's of age. Ask him. He's of legal age, which is about 13. He's obviously older than 13. He said, hey, a little bit sarcastic, if you ask me, a little bit impertinent. He said, go ask him. Don't bother us. We're not going to get involved in your controversies because we don't want to get thrown out of the synagogue. Now, what's the big deal about getting thrown out of the synagogue? Well, let's look at some of the precedents of excommunication. It was reported as early as the time of Ezra. We see in Ezra 10.8, Whoever did not come within three days would forfeit all his possessions, set apart all his possessions for destruction according to the decision of the leaders and elders, and would be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. This is talking about rebuilding the temple, and people weren't flying, right? And Ezra said, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. So that's where it was first reported. By the time you get to the New Testament, there's practically no information on how excommunication from the synagogue was practiced, according to the NIV Study Bible. The NIV Study Bible also points out that why banning was a terrible punishment and why people avoided it at all cost. The synagogue was the center of Jewish community life. Someone who was excommunicated would be cut off from many social relationships. They wouldn't be cut off from worship uh, in some forms of excommunication. Some they might, at least in later times, the NIV Study Bible says. But still, they would be cut out from social, social dealings. Which, of course, you know, social ostracism is a terrible thing. If anybody who's ever been socially ostracized can tell you. Now, there were two forms of excommunication. According to John Gill, there was a mild form called nidui or nidui. I don't know how to pronounce that. The excommunication lasted up to 90 days. 
Adam Clark says this is what the parents were afraid of. They were afraid of getting kicked out for 90 days. But then there was a severe form of excommunication, Gill says, Cherem, C-H-E-R-E-M, and please excuse the pronunciation. This form of communication cut off the excommunicant from the whole body of the Jewish people. And this, and this is, of course, <laughs> I think it was permanent. I don't know if it was permanent, but it, it was more severe, longer than 90 days. And Gill says, this struck great terror in the minds of the people. And John Gill says, this is what the parents were afraid of. Of course, nobody knows what the parents, what kind of excommunication the parents were afraid of, but it was clear that it was a terrible thing to get excommunicated, and they didn't want it. And so they didn't stick up for their son as strong as they might have. And I will withhold comment about what they should have done as parents. I'm not in their position, so I don't know. John 9, verses 24 through 25. So a, second, so a second time they, the Pharisees, summoned the man who had been blind and told him, Give glory to God. We, we know that this man is a sinner. He, the man born blind, answered, Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. Well, on first blush, the phrase here that the Pharisees told the man born blind, give glory to God, what in the world has that, that got to do with anything? Well, this is a, a language culture thing. When you say, when the Jews say give glory to God, what they mean is, what they mean to say is, we are giving you a solemn charge to tell the truth. This is from the NIV margin. Here's an example of that in Joshua 7:19. So Joshua said to Achan, he was the guy that was accused of hiding booty under his tent, which was supposed to be devoted to God. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to God. So the idea was confess to some sin that you've done. And so when the Pharisees said to the man born blind, give glory to God, what they were saying is, man, you are sinning and you just need to confess it right now. <laughs> you, you, you are sinning. Now, they couldn't really be saying they were that the man was sinning because he's lying about being born blind and that he's involved in fraud with Jesus because his parents just testified very clearly that he was born blind. It's hard, it's hard to go against that testimony. But what they're probably saying is confess that you were healed by a sinner like Jesus who healed you on the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath and showing that he's a sinner because he broke our traditions. Now, you of course, whenever you see the word sinner, you've got to dissect it a little bit. Is it, is it talking about sinner in the sense of a moral sinner, a liar, a rapist, a murderer? Or is it talking about one who breaks the traditions of the Pharisees? I think, surprisingly enough, a lot of times in the Gospels it refers to that. Not talking about a moral sinner, but a breaker of the Jewish man-made traditions, the traditions of the elders. Now, when they say, we know, uh, the Greek is emphatic there. And so what it's saying is, we Pharisees know that this man is a sinner, as opposed to you, who are trying to claim that he he healed you from birth and, and trying to say that. And, and also uh, probably in, implying that you are a disciple of him. The Pharisees are later going to say he's a disciple. We don't know for sure that he was, but it's a good chance that he was. And so we Pharisees know he's a sinner. And now you want to be his disciple? The man answered, 25, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. And of course the man couldn't know. He was testifying very naively, very frankly. I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I don't even know who he was. He disappeared. I was blind when he healed me. I don't know who he was. But I will appeal to the one thing I do know. I was blind, and I can see now. And, of course, the whole implication behind this is, look, you want to say he's a sinner? Okay, what kind of a sinner can take a man that's born blind from birth and heal him? You tell me, Pharisees. How can that be? 
He's kind of he's kind of coming at them. Now, as for the charge the Pharisees so confidently made that the man is a sinner, uh, exactly what proof did they have of that? Absolutely none, John Gill says, unless they counted Sabbath breaking as a sin, which they probably did, because that only was meaning that was only breaking the traditions of the elders, not the Mosaic law. It was never anything in the law, a Mosaic law, or for that matter, for the in the traditions of the elders that said it was wrong to do good on the Sabbath, as we know from all the numerous Sabbath controversies in the Gospels. Now, when the man answered, the man born blind answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. He was not trying to imply that there's a possibility that Jesus was a sinner. This Jameson Fawcett Brown points that out. He was just saying he didn't have any evidence one way or another, and he wasn't going to make a statement on that. But he wasn't implying that he thought he was a sinner. I don't believe for a minute he thought he was a sinner. He, the beggar must have been inclined to the idea that Jesus was not a sinner, because what kind of a sinner can heal men born blind? We go now to verses 26 and 27. Then they, the Pharisees, asked him, the man born blind, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I don't know, what are they thinking? Did he use magic or something? Did he appeal to Beelzebul? How did he open your eyes? In verse 27, the, better, the beggar shows a little bit of pique here. I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Ooh, that's cheeky. Remember, these are big shot Pharisees who control the nation. And this guy was a man who spent his entire life blind, begging on the side of the road, trying to keep body and soul together. And he's fired up. He said, I already told you. And you didn't listen. What, you want to hear it again? You can hear the sarcasm. You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? And I believe he's still being sarcastic because I think he knows they don't want to be his disciples. <laughs> so this is really cheeky. This is, he, I mean, really. He's, uh, this man stood right up to these nasty Pharisees. Now, when he says you don't want to become his disciples too, do you? This can mean one of two things. It could mean that the man himself, the man born blind, he himself had become a disciple. You don't want to become his disciples like I have also, do you? It could mean that, or it also could mean you don't want to become his disciples too, in addition to all the other people around here who've become his disciples. I'm not one of those guys, but other people have become his disciples. You don't want to become his disciples too. And there's no way we can tell from the scripture here. Now, the NIV Study Bible says, yes, the beggar already counted himself as a disciple. And like I say, I don't think it proves it one way or another. It indicates it. I, and I'm going to assume that's true, that the, the man became a disciple. He later on confessed that Jesus was the Son of God somewhere. Uh, later on in this in this passage, as we'll see, uh, where he actually decided that is not clear. But let's just assume that he had become a disciple. And, of course, this is sarcastic. As John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, and it's pretty clear you read it, he, he's been pretty sarcastic with them. Adam Clark, on the other hand, says, no, the man sincerely thought the Pharisees might like to become Jesus' disciples. Well, you could read it that way, but I don't think he was that stupid. The Pharisees, you know, they just finished saying the man was a sinner, that Jesus was a sinner. Why would, why would the man born blind think that the Pharisees wanted to become Jesus' disciples? So he was probably being sarcastic. When the man born blind said, I already told you, that, of course, refers to a previous verse, which I covered in the last audio, John 9:15. So again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. He told them, I watched them and I can see. So he's already testified once. Now, you might ask, well, why would the Pharisees make him testify twice? Again, why? Well, here's some options as to why they did that. They were perhaps hoping the beggar would contradict his testimony. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea. They might 
of wanted to try again to prove he had not been blind from birth. They had failed when they had talked to the parents to prove that. Maybe they were going to try to catch him up again and prove, hey, you weren't blind from birth. Maybe they were just in some way trying to impeach his testimony to show that he had some contradictions in it some way. Some way they were trying to baffle him, confuse him, confound him. You know, like cross-examining attorneys always try to do. Maybe they were trying to prove that, John, as John Gill says, that Jesus had used some sort of black magic, the power of, in the in the in cahoots with Beelzebul. We go to verse 28 and 29. They, the Pharisees, ridiculed him, ridiculed the man born blind. Quote, you're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. Notice they say that man. <laughs> They're not going to mention Jesus' name. That would be giving him too much honor. So they just dismiss him with that man. You're that man's disciple. We're Moses' disciple. And, of course, the Pharisees love Moses because Moses was the author of the law, which they added to abundantly. Now, here we see the contrast between Jesus, that man, and Moses, that man's disciples, Jesus' disciples, and Moses' disciples. Us, we Pharisees, are Moses' disciples, and you, the man healed, are Jesus' disciple. Here you see the contrast between Moses and Jesus, the contrast which we see in the book of Hebrews. The old covenant is done away with, and the new covenant, the law of Christ, is now established. Big, big controversy, a big uh, distinction, a distinction that I wish Reformed theologians would take note of, which they never do, or rarely do. I'm, I'm referring to their covenant theology, which says that the law of Moses and the law of Christ is really just a different administration, not a different covenant, but a different administration of the one overarching covenant of grace, a theory which, in my humble opinion, is hooey. Now, the Pharisees say, we know that God has spoken to Moses... We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. Well, when did God speak to Moses? Well, that's probably talking about God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. Could have been the burning bush. This is, of course, standard Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. The Pharisees know that. And they say, we're appealing to all our tradition in the scriptures. We don't know where this guy's from. Where's Jesus from? Now, they knew where he's from physically. Obviously, they knew he's from Nazareth. Everybody knew that. They didn't know he's from Beth born in Bethlehem, but they, everybody knew he was born in Nazareth. Uh, excuse me, that he was living in Nazareth or and had come from up north, from Galilee. But what they're talking about here, I'm pretty sure, is that th we don't know where he's from spiritually. We don't know who his father is. Is he from the devil or is he from God? How do we know who this man is? Where is he? Pharisee, as I said, the Pharisees were probably referring to his spiritual origin, as John Gill and Adam Clark affirm. And John Gill points out they knew he was from Az Nazareth. They knew his parents, Joseph and Mary, and his brothers and sisters from another scripture, and I don't have it in front of me, but they knew. And they were saying, we don't know where Jesus is from spiritually. And, of course, the answer was he's from the Father. Jesus constantly said, the one who sent me, the one who sent me, the one who sent me, you can't go where I'm going because you don't know the Father, but I've been there, and, I, and I'm come from there, and I know of all the things that the Father has taught me, and I and the Father am one, and the Father judges, and I judge, and the Father does works, and I do works. I mean, he's said it over and over and over again in, in these previous couple of chapters in John. But no, the blockheaded Pharisees still don't know where Jesus is from. We go to verses 30 through 33. <laughs> this is an amazing thing, the man told them. The man healed from birth. The man blind from birth told the Pharisees, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from. Yet he opened my eyes. In other words, what he's saying here is, how can you be so stupid? Anybody that can heal a man born from blind, born blind, anybody that can heal such a person has got to be from heaven. You've got to know he's from heaven. You can't be that stupid. Verse 31. 
We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He's conceding, yeah, that's true, Pharisees. He wouldn't be from God if he were a sinner. But the blind man, the formerly blind man continues, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. So now the sinner is, the, the sinner, excuse me, the blind man, the formerly blind man is trying to set up a contrast between sinners and God-fearing people. And he's trying to say, now, which, which category does Jesus fall into here? He continues, throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do this, to do anything. So in other words, he's saying, look, you blockheaded Pharisees, is he a sinner, i.e. not from God, or is he from God and God-fearing? Obviously, he's from God and God-fearing because he did an incredible miracle, and you can't explain it. This is one cheeky beggar. Then Ivy Stutter Bible puts it this way, this is good reasoning from an unschooled man. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. Thus, a simple man, guided by the spirit of truth and continuing steady in his testimony, utterly confounded the most eminent Jewish doctors. When they had no longer either reason or argument to oppose to him, as a proof of their discomfiture and a monument of their reproach and shame, they had recourse to the secular arm, and thus silenced by political power a person whom they had neither reason nor religion to withstand. In other words, they kicked, got him kicked out of the synagogue probably by the Sanhedrin, the political power, got him kicked out of the, got the blind man kicked out of the synagogue because they could not answer him. That just shows it doesn't matter how weak you are. When you got the power of the Holy Spirit behind you, you can confound even the biggest of big shots. John Gill puts it this way. It is amazing that you learned doctors, men of sagacity and penetration, should not be able to discern that this man is of God. You know, the Pharisees themselves probably had a division among themselves as to whether Jesus was from God. In verses 16 of this chapter, in John 9, we read this. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, and that probably means other Pharisees, others were saying, How can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And that could be the, the crowd, but it's probably a division among the Pharisees. So the t evidence was so strong that even the hateful, bigoted Pharisees, even they were having trouble to condemn Jesus as a sinner because the sign was so incredibly big. Now, again, let me go back to this word sinners. Verse 31, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. John Gill says that the meaning of sinners in this context is notorious sinners. He can't be referring to the fact that all men are sinners. Because then God wouldn't listen to anyone. We know that all, God doesn't listen to sinners. Oh, that doesn't mean he doesn't listen to me when I pray. I'm a sinner. I sin. No, he's talking about notorious sinners. People who are in open and notorious sin and rebellion against God. We go now to John 9, verse 34. You were born entirely in sin. You, the beggar born blind who was healed by Jesus. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And you're trying to teach us? They finally lashed back at it, beggar sarcasm. Then they threw him out. <laughs> so, what did they mean? You were born entirely in sin, you nasty beggar. Well, remember in the previous audio I talked about the Pharisees' idea that there was no sin for which there could not be determined a cause. For example, excuse me, there was no, there was no evil thing, an evil result that could not be determined by a cause. When blindness is evil, it had to be some sin behind it. This, of course, entirely contradicts the whole book of Job because sometimes righteous people have bad things happen to them. We have a saying in English, bad things happen to good people. There's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between sin and bad results. 
But the Pharisees didn't understand that. They didn't understand the book of Job. And so they said, hey, you were born blind. You must have been born in sin. Now, that sin could have been in your mother and your parents. That sin could have been something you did in your mother's womb. Maybe you kicked your mama too hard. It could have been some kind of sin you did in a previous life, in a previous incarnate life, if, we, if it is indeed true that the Pharisees believed in reincarnation. Or it could have been some kind of sin in a pre-incarnate, a pre um a previous disembodied state when you were some spirit floating around before God put you in the body. But somewhere there had to be a sin to cause you to be blind. So you were born entirely in sin. You were completely a sinner. Then they threw him out. Now that could, have means, that could mean they threw him out of his presence. Most people tend to think that it means that they threw him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. Because remember, the parents were worried about getting excommunicated. Jesus later came and went and and gave comfort to the blind man, which lends credence to the idea that he had gotten thrown out of the synagogue, which is a terrible thing, as I pointed out previously. I mean, you just get healed, you've been blind all your life, and then the same day you get thrown out of the synagogue. What a terrible day. Well, Jesus went and bucked him up, as we'll see in just a minute. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that most probably, more probably, he was excommunicated. They don't take a firm stand on it. I'm just going to assume that he, they were ex he was excommunicated. We go now to John 9, verse 35. When Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, he found him and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now remember, Jesus had made himself scarce after he told the man to go wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. And the man was not healed until he got down to the pool of Siloam. And Jesus had long been gone by then. So the man didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know two things. He didn't know who had healed him. And he didn't know whether the person who had healed him was the Messiah. That was two things. So Jesus found him. Why did he find him? He had obviously been looking for the man, as the NIV Study Bible said. John Gill says he knew the man would be in a piteous condition and abandoned. And I add this reason. Jesus wanted him to believe in him, not just to be healed. He wanted him to, to understand Jesus as the Messiah. And in fact, that is why he used the phrase in John 9:35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a Messianic phrase. It comes from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. The Son of Man inherits the throne from the Ancient of Days with the kingdom. He's going to inherit a kingdom which will be forever and ever and ever. This is a messianic phrase that Jesus used all the time. And he's trying to impress on this blind man, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm not just a healer. I'm not just a prophet. I'm the Messiah. We go now to John 9, verses 36 through 38. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He, the man born blind, asked. So this is the, the beggar talking to Jesus. He says, who is he? Who is this Messiah? Who is the Son of Man, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered, uh, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you now. I like how he does that. He did that with the Samaritan woman, too. The Samaritan woman says, oh, who's this, woman? Who's this person that can give me uh, living waters forever? I am he, the Messiah, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. You're standing here. You're looking at him. This of which would be quite a shock. It quite a, it's kind of dramatic the way Jesus did that. In fact, oh, and by the way, the Messiah, the Son of Man, he's speaking with you right now. When the man heard that, in verse 38, he says, I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Hey, if he believed in Jesus and he worshipped him. He was a believer right then. The NIV Study Bible, in the previous audio I mentioned this, the NIV, the NIV Study Bible mentions the stages of belief that the man went through. He started out in John 9:11, just calling Jesus a man. When he testified, he was a man, made mud, spread it on my eyes. But then he gets down to verse 17, he calls him a prophet. 
Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. That's what he tells the Pharisees. And we go down to John 9, 27. The man says he's a prophet who should have disciples behind him. John 9, 27, I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? In other words, he just assumes that this prophet should have disciples. And then in verse 33, the man born blind says that Jesus was from God. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything, thus implying, of course, that he was from God. And now here in verse 38, the verse upon which we are now lighted, Jesus, uh, the man says, I believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. So now he has come to the full stage of belief. This, of course, indicates that belief is not usually, in my opinion, from my experience, I should say, usually not automatic all at once. A lot of times people have to go through a process of sorting things out and repentance and do I really want to follow Jesus? I don't know if I can count the cost and people might laugh at me and I just don't know. I, you know, they go through all kinds of mental and spiritual gyrations before they finally say, yes, Lord, they bend their knee and they accept Christ as the Messiah. We now move to John 9:39. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do not see will become blind. Well, on the surface, that's very simple. He said, I'm judging these Pharisees. They think they see, but they don't see. They're going to become blind because they don't see spiritual things. He's talking about spiritually see, seeing here. And he's saying that those who do not see, that means that those who are spiritually blind will see. And of course, he's referring to the beggar who did not see who the Messiah was, and all of a sudden he, now he does see who the Messiah is. And then when he's talking about those who see him will become blind, he's talking about the Pharisees who think they see. When he says those who do see, he means who do think they see, and they will become blind. And that's a simple interpretation of that verse. And notice that he's using see in the spiritual sense here. He's, he's not flipping back and forth between seeing spiritually and seeing physically. Well, that's straightforward enough. However, there's a problem here a harmonization problem, because Jesus says in verse 39, where we are, he says, I came into this world for judgment. I came into this world to judge. But in John 3:17, let me read this to you. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Hmm. Condemn means judge, same thing, or at least it's close. So God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world in John 3.17. And in John 12.47, we read this. If anyone hears my words, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Hmm. That seems like a pretty direct contradiction. Well, one way you can reconcile it, let me give you some options. One way is that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world during his earthly ministry. He was trying to get people saved. He was going to wait till the end of the world when he obviously was given the task of judging the entire world at the great day of judgment at the end of time. That's one way you can reconcile it. Here's another option. This is what most of the commentators use. This is what the NIV Study Bible says. Jesus' first or direct purpose was not to condemn. In other words, my main purpose, we read John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world for the main purpose of condemning the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Or John 12.47, I do not judge someone who doesn't keep my words, for I did not come to judge, I did not come for my main purpose to judge the world, but to save the world. And that works pretty good. <clears throat> Basically, what you're saying is, 
his main purpose was not to judge the world, but now judgment does come as a byproduct, as a secondary purpose. It's just it's inevitable when Jesus comes and condemns sin, he's going to condemn people who are under sin. They're going to become blind. Now, this is the NIV Study Bible solution, also John Piper's solution. John Piper gives two interesting analogies to try to explain this. Let me give you the first one, quote, It's like a doctor being called to amputate a man's arm because of a horrible infection. In order to save his life, just before the sick man goes under the anesthesia, he asks the doctor, Did you come to cut off my arm? And the doctor answers, I didn't come to cut off your arm. I came to save your life. Well, of course, he is going to cut off his arm, but that's not his main purpose. His main purpose is to save not to cut off. Likewise, Jesus' main purpose was to save, not to condemn, although he's going to condemn later at the end of the world. Here's another example that Piper gives. It's like a military special forces team being airlifted behind enemy lines to rescue a POW from certain death. They have grenades and guns and knives, but the commander says, your mission is not to kill. Your mission is to get the prisoner out. Do what you have to do. So they might have to kill some of the prison guards as a side effect, but the main purpose is not going there and kill the enemy. The main purpose is to get the prisoners out. The prisoners out. The POWs out. So the main purpose of the rescue squad is salvation, not to kill. However, some people might get killed in the process. Well, I think that's pretty, pretty good. Let me look at some other suggestions, which I don't think are as strong. Here's one that says that the judgment here is a positive thing. I came, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who don't see will see. How can judgment be a positive thing? Well, let me give you an example of that. Psalms 1, verses 5, first part of the verse. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In other words, the wicked are not going to get a positive judgment at the end of the world. A judgment can be positive. The judge orders the defendant to, uh, in his order, the plaintiff will receive $1 million from the defendant. That's a positive thing. That, that plaintiff has a judgment. He goes records it in the courthouse. That judgment is a good thing, not a bad thing. Well, that's very nice, but I think it doesn't work here because not only in this verse, John 9:39, not only is there a positive thing mentioned in order that those who do not see will see, that's a positive, and you could say that refers to judgment, but how about this? There's also something negative, and those who do see will become blind. That's negative, so that tends to make you think that judgment is a negative thing. So I think that the Piper NIV Study Bible reconciliation is better. That is, refers to Jesus' main and secondary purposes purposes main purpose is to main purpose is to save secondary purpose is to is to condemn people under sin to judge people as being under sin another way you can distinguish it is to distinguish it is to say there's two different kinds of judgment being talked about in John 3:17 it's talking about the judge condemnation sending people to hell i did not come into the world to send people to hell why? Because people are already under that kind of judgment. I don't need to do that. I won't need to do that till the end of the world. I didn't come into the world to condemn people to hell. I came to save them from hell. But here, it's a different type of judgment. It's just a judgment of, of letting people discern the spiritual truth and not discern spiritual truth. It's a discernment, not a condemnation to hell. Well, however you reconcile it, I really think that the Piper NIV Study Bible way is the best way to reconcile that. So let's now go to John 9, verse 40. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? And I'm going to assume the Pharisees heard what Jesus said to the man born blind. Jesus said, I came into the world for judgment that those who do see will become blind. The Pharisees heard that. They knew that Jesus was referring to them because Jesus, what he was really saying, that those who think they see, but they really don't, 
they will become blind to spiritual truth. The Pharisees had to have heard that because, in my opinion, because some of those Pharisees then asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? So they were responding to what they heard from Jesus. But the interesting thing is, the NIV Study Bible says that it is unlikely that Jesus would have said this in front of the Pharisees. I don't see what's unlikely about it. They've already excommunicated the beggar from the Sanhedrin, from the synagogue. He's already been excommunicated, we assume. He's already been treated badly. So why, So it's not a big deal that Jesus is talking about spiritual things in front of this blind man with the Pharisees listening on. I just don't see what's, what the problem is. Now, we do know for certain that this is not at the time when the Pharisees interrogated the blind man the second time and then they kicked him out. That happened previously because this is a separate incident where Jesus went out separate from the Pharise- from the condemning body of Pharisees there and found the blind man again at a different place and there were some other Pharisees hanging around. Or maybe it was some of the original Pharisees who had thrown excommunicated him or thrown him out. Maybe it was some of those. But at any rate, I don't see why Jesus would be scared of or why it's unlikely that Jesus would be talking to the blind man about spiritual things in front of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who did hear this, they understood well that Jesus was jabbing at them. They understood that Jesus was speaking in a spiritual sense. And, and the NIV Study Bible says they found it incredible that anyone would consider them spiritually blind. Us? Us godly, holy Pharisees? You're saying we're spiritually blind? What's the matter with you? Verse 41, and we'll finish it up. If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. And basically what Jesus is saying, look, if you would admit that you were blind, and if you admit that you don't know spiritual truth, you would be uh, sinning against your ignorance, and I could take that away. You wouldn't have sin, he would say. He, he, Jesus is not really saying, if you were sinning in ignorance, you wouldn't have sin. No, you would still be sinning in ignorance. But what I think he means is, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin after I take it away, because I'll take away your sin if you're in ignorance and you repent of it. But now that you say, we see, in other words, you're so proud and arrogant right here in the presence of the son of god and in the presence of a miracle that was done by the son of god you're still saying we see that jesus is a sinner we don't know where he's from and then you kick this blind beggar out of the synagogue your sin remains and folks this is blasphemy against the holy spirit when you see a miracle done by jesus and then you refuse to admit that jesus is the son of god and you say all kind of manner of bad things about him that's not a sin in ignorance. That in ignorance, that is a deliberate sin against the Holy Spirit. Let me read you the blasphemy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit verse. Different context, of course. Matthew 12, verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, Jesus did the miracle by the Holy Spirit, and you're speaking against it. You're saying the miracle didn't occur. By the way, this idea that I had, let me let me point out to you that there could be some problem in interpreting this verse at first, this verse at first blush. If you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. Why just but by not knowing spiritual truth you, are you free from sin? Just because you don't know you're sinning, you're still sinning. And that's the problem I had with it when I first read it. But John Gill points out that what Jesus meant here was that not that you wouldn't have sin at all, even in the midst of your blindness. It means that you would have sin, but it would be taken away. You wouldn't have sin after Jesus took it away, which implies after they repent, of course. And so I have finished John 9:41. In our next audio, we will take up John 10, verses 1 through 21, the story of the Good Shepherd, Jesus the Good Shepherd. I hope you listened to that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 